0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. And yeah, these fish are kind of assholes. Um, They're also really ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Which isn't their fault. Do we have any more insults?
1: We can heap on these (laughs) pages.
0: Yeah, they sound like pigs when they come up to breathe. Wow. Yeah.
1: All right, you want to do it? Come on.
0: Oof. Oof. (laughs) It's kind of what it sounds like. It's more like really, yeah, it's like an odd grunting noise. It's really strange.
1: We're talking about an ugly asshole fish that comes up and grunts like a pig when (laughs) it breathes. My grandmother was a big devotee of the if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all rule. But here we are. Journalist Michael Snyder and I had to talk. I've got the microphones and he wrote a fantastic story that I wanted to hear more about. It doesn't matter that I don't have anything nice to say about iguanas, an invasive species in my hometown, or that he doesn't have anything nice to say about the invasive paiche fish in the Bolivian Amazon. That's the subject of his story and of this episode. And those fish are jerks, but they are fascinating jerks, from the reason they proliferated to how they came to be on sale in your local Whole Foods. So, pour a glass of Bolivian singani and listen to your trash host trash talk a trash fish. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world.
0: I am Michael Snyder. I'm an associate editor here at Roads and Kingdoms and a freelance journalist. I'm uh, currently based in Mexico City, where I've lived for the last two years. Well, I think that what kind of drew me to the Paiche in the first place as as a story is that uh, in its native habitat in Peru and Brazil, mostly it's endangered or it's considered threatened uh, according to international conservation law. Um, But in Bolivia, it's invasive. So you have a species that is, as far as everybody is concerned legally, um, threatened with extinction or threatened to become threatened with extinction if it continues to be hunted in the wild. Um, but since the 1970s, uh, it has invaded the Bolivian Amazon. I think now it's invaded something like a quarter of the Bolivian Amazon. Um, so Bolivian fishermen are, are in kind of a weird position, uh, legally speaking, vis-a-vis this giant fish.
1: So it's like as if bison started showing up around the city, and uh, people yeah, like if, it or hunted. more like if
0: bison were to turn up somewhere in Vancouver, right? So mm-hmm. it's across a national border. They shouldn't be there. They never were there in the past. No. I don't know if Vancouver ever had bison. I feel like maybe not. Uh, I don't know that much about bison or Vancouver, or if I know nothing about Vancouver. Um, but, yeah, so they're suddenly there, and there are all these rules protecting this animal, but they shouldn't be in this place in the first place. And suddenly they're, like, I don't know, killing all of the people who live in Vancouver or some native species of of, like roving mammal <laughs> that somehow is now endangered because of, its, because of its presence. I feel
1: like we're just totally nailing this analogy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I <laughs> the mean, Baiche in Bolivia is definitely the bison in Vancouver. Absolutely. Um,
0: I mean, the thing about the fish is it's carnivorous, right? So it is eating all of the native species, um, or so people think. Um, that's what fishermen will say. Unfortunately, there's not a ton of data um, there aren't a ton of data uh, about the paiche because it takes a lot of time and money to gather like good scientific information. So they don't have firm data, conclusive data that says that this fish is actually um, harming local species. But every fisherman you talk to there will confirm that they've seen substantial declines in native fish species since the arrival of this fish.
1: So obviously fisheries are down all over the world in the oceans and lakes and rivers and streams. What if it's all the fucking paiche? <laughs> I mean, or put another way, isn't it possible that, like, there are lots of other reasons why these fish are going out and people are just saying, like, oh, look at the paiche."
0: Totally. And that's part it. of the thing about it, right? There's the hydroelectric problem. Um, there are a lot of dams being built just across the border in Brazil, which are affecting migratory fish and keeping certain species of migratory fish from coming into into that ecosystem. So that's one problem. There's always the question of overfishing. That said, um, Bolivia doesn't have large-scale industrial fishing. Uh, it's an, it's a landlocked country. People in Bolivia barely eat fish.
1: I mean, I do like, though, the idea that a fisherman looking for someone to blame for diminished fisheries would say, well,
0: look at that fucking fish. Mm-hmm. Well, they're losing <laughs> saying something. Usually doesn't it use, need some killing? But, but, but what I've always seen is usually like, I mean, I've done a lot of fishing stories, like a weird number of fishing stories. Fishermen are great. And they're always blaming whoever's across the border. So in some ways, this isn't that different, right? They're blaming... A foreign fish. I yeah. mean, you hear crazy fucking stories about this fish. I mean, you hear people talking about it being a science experiment from Peru that the Peruvians oh, yes. deliberately released into their waters, that this fish was raised by scientists and fed on the blood of livestock. I mean, like, it's crazy like the stuff.
1: Chupacabra fish.
0: Kind of. Wow. But people, nobody believes it's a real species. People are like, oh, no, this isn't a natural species. And you're like, no, no, it's been around for five million years. And people are like, nah definitely not true it's definitely a science experiment and it's definitely the peruvians It's like,
1: okay. oh shit well don't tell Infowars about it it's <laughs> gonna be all over it
0: they are importing it from peru you know the peruvians are exporting it here and we're selling it as chilean sea bass um we're selling it as a sustainable alternative to chilean sea bass at whole foods since no 2014. Yeah. And it's called? I think they sell it as paiche. Paiche. In um, other places, they sell it as Amazonian cod, I think. <laughs> cod yeah. is such a trash word. It's, it's amazing. It's pretty similar to cod yeah. in the sense that it's like dense and not super fatty and doesn't have a ton of flavor. Like, yeah. It, you know, it's fine. It's an absolutely fine fish.
1: One of my favorite things about having lived in uh, in Somerville, Mass., uh, for a year, was the slow realization that scrod on a menu is like a, a thing. I don't even. What do is they scrod? Still do it?
0: I have never heard that word. Well, that's
1: the thing. Is like you go in and they'd be like, "Yeah, we got uh, fried scrod tonight." And
0: oh. <laughs> 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 scrod I eat everything but God.
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, scrod was uh, scrod is basically just a junk word that they would use to be like. Uh, we got this stuff. It's definitely fish. Like, we don't know what kind of fish. <laughs> so we're going to call it scrod uh, and fry it up for you.
0: Um, I mean, the paiche is fine. Like, that's the other thing about it is people in Bolivia don't like eating it. Like, they think it's flavorless compared to their native fish species. They just don't really want it. In the cities, it's getting more popular. People are eating it more. But if you go into these fishing communities, like, they want nothing to do with this fish. I mean, they're, they're still, like, kind of amazed at the size of it, but they don't actually like how it tastes.
1: And is it, like, they're used to, like, kind of smaller, oily river fish? Oh, uh, the, this the is Amazon like...
0: river fish are not small. They're pretty big. Their favorite one is called baku, which those things grow, like, the size of a manhole cover. They can be that big, and they can grow up to, like, 40, 50 kilos. I mean, they're not small yeah. fish. Imagine, like, a really good fish stick. Like, baiche would be perfect for making fish sticks, is kind of my feeling about it. It's, like, firm flesh. You can't really overcook it. it has no intramuscular bones. So, like, you're not going to get any, like, nasty little spines in your throat. Wow. It's good. It just doesn't taste like much.
1: Yeah. Well, that fucking Americans would be all over that.
0: Exactly. The, this is the whole point. Like, they really need to be exporting it, but they legally can't, is the funny part. Got it. They cannot. No. Because it's threatened with being threatened. Right. Not, of course, in Bolivia, but the conservation laws, as they're on the books, um, according to the... It's a convention that was signed by the UN in 1975. The Scrat Accord of the 1975. Scrot Accord. The, the famed the famed Scrat Accord. Yeah, so essentially, it's listed on that as a as a species that could be threatened if it's if exports and trade are not closely regulated, which basically means that it cannot be wild caught specimens cannot be exported. The Peruvians can export, and the Brazilians can export because they have fish farms. Bolivia, because the fisheries sector is such a minuscule part of the of the economy on the national level, they don't really have money for fisheries. So pretty much all of the baite that's coming out of Bolivia is coming out of its rivers, and if you can't, and like trading within Bolivia is fine, and there's lots of black market trade across those two borders. Yeah, but even still, they can't export to the U.S. because they haven't gone through the steps necessary to demonstrate to the U.N. that the fish is not endangered in their in their um, territory. Yeah. So while Peru continues to export this fish from their fish farms, Bolivia is taking tons of it out of their water, out of their rivers, and they have to find a way to consume it either internally or to trade it illegally into Brazil and Peru. Got it. Meanwhile, also, just incidentally, the whole reason it ended up in Bolivia in the first place is that in the 60s and 70s, when it was beginning to be acknowledged that there was going to be this issue of overfishing in the wild, Peruvians started uh, fish farms in southern Peru, in an area where it wasn't really there originally, rivers Uh that didn't initially um, live in. In 79, I believe, there was a big flood, and one of those fish farms was breached. And all of these fish that were put there in the first place in order to protect the species from um, from overfishing in the wild were washed into the Bolivian watershed. So it's actually... As a result of attempts to protect the fish in its native habitat that you created this problem of invasion in Bolivia, I don't know if it's literally the same fish farm, but the same fish farms that kind of created the problem in the first place are also now able to export to the U.S. because they're considered sustainable. It's a
1: mess. So basically, the, these things had been endangered in the wild until the fish farms just kind of put thousands upon thousands of young paiche into the rivers, and yeah, then they kinda. found out they could kick a bunch of ass in yeah, numbers. Yeah, they
0: were they were using. Well, they were already doing really well in rivers. The problem is that um, in the rivers where they're native, there are environments over the course of five million years evolved to. You know, function with the species like that. You know, so there are other big fish in those rivers. People in those areas are in the habit of eating those fish. They've been hunting them for who knows how long. I mean, since long before we have like historical recordings of the way indigenous communities were, were fishing, right? So, like, part of the problem in Bolivia has been that the oxbow lakes, which are, are uh, formed when curves in the river are cut off by um, erosion. Um, So you get like bends in the river that eventually are separated and become these individual lakes. And often in the rainy season, they'll reconnect to the mainstream of the river. Those are historically where all these other fish species go to reproduce. The Paiche likes those places too. So they're now setting up in there in the dry season eating all the young of the other fish reproducing really successfully they're really good at reproducing
1: that is a classic move uh, like a dick move in the fish world just eat all the babies yeah I mean the lionfish have you know have been spreading in Asia and the Caribbean by just hanging out at the reef and just eating baby grouper
0: yeah it's Um, a super common problem yeah and yeah these fish are kind of assholes they're also really ugly
1: <laughs> Which isn't their fault. Do we have any more insults we can heap on these <laughs> pinches?
0: Yeah, they sound like pigs when they come up to breathe. They breathe air. That's another fun thing about them. Uh, they have to come up to, so they have to surface for We're
1: talking about an ugly asshole fish that comes up and grunts like a pig when it <laughs> yeah. breathes. Yep. Um amazing.
0: That's about right. Every fifteen to twenty minutes or so they come up to they surface to breathe. Wow. Yeah.
1: All right, you want to do it? Come on. Oof. Oof.
0: It's kinda what it sounds like. It's more it, like really, it, it, yeah, it's like an odd grunting noise. It's really strange. In one of the places we went, the fishermen called them uh, baquitas, little cows. Little cows. Uh-huh. That's also a whole other extinct fish. But There's a little wanna... cow? There was. It's gone now, like as of last year, I think. It was in Baja, in the Sea of Cortez.
1: Oh, like it's like some kind of manatee, like a sea yeah, cow? Yeah,
0: or like more like a... Dolphin, maybe I don't remember. It it was weird. Oh, the
1: vaquita. Oh yeah, the yeah, vaquita. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, they're still down
0: there. The I thought the last one had finally died.
1: No, no, the sea shepherds. Uh, they're uh, they're going down this week. They sent me an email. They like I to. Saying, I don't buy it. I think warned me. Really, I think they're gone. <laughs> you think Paul Watson is just like being a huge dick again? No, and I just think it's the like, sort of thing where, like, yeah, they think there's still one or... out there, but like, come on. Yeah.
0: Also, it's too late. Like that ship has sailed. Not Man, to be a defeatist, quick, but gotta
1: gotta get paul watson on the phone don't tell him i said that um otherwise <laughs> he's gonna drive his stinking uh trawler up uh up into mexico city and just <laughs> like <laughs> shout at you from a bullhorn tell me about the experience of getting to the place you need to get to in order to experience the majesty of uh, an ugly asshole fish that comes to the surface of the river and grunts at you. How do you get there?
0: Well, so I've actually gone a few times to Bolivia in the last couple of years. Uh, the first time I went down, I had flown to La Paz and then from there flew down to a town called um Baque, which is pretty popular with tourists who are going there to go into the Madidi National Park. That's a relatively easy place to get to. It's a one-hour flight on a really tiny little uh, plane that brings you into an airport that's a dirt landing strip in the jungle. Um, But it's a nice little town. It's fine. But from there, to go to the first village where I saw Paiche, uh, which is a place called Las Peñitas... Uh, we found a fisherman, a uh, head of a fisherman's association, who was deaf in one ear um, from having been dragged under by a net that he threw once, um, and his ear burst when he was being dragged underwater. So he was difficult to talk to, but he was great. And he took us out with a guy who was a merchant, a fish merchant, um, to a village where this merchant, Eric, had set up. And that village was supposed to be a nine-hour drive. I think it took us 12 to get there. It's just really the middle of nowhere. And it was the beginning of the rainy season. So like, or it was going to be the beginning of the rainy season. We had been warned as we left that if it rained, we wouldn't be able to get out. That basically... But
1: this is a road. It's
0: kind of... It's a into road. the Amazon.
1: You're not on a boat at this point. No,
0: no, no. I mean, you could go by water. Yeah. Um, and in the rainy season, they do go by water. I mean, so we were supposed to go back to Las Pinitas this time. So that was in 2016. Okay. Went back in um, April of this year. And we were supposed to go to Las Penitas a second time. The problem was, in the rainy season this year, there was one stretch that had a very tiny bridge, and it collapsed. So they said, there's no way to go in by road. We'll have to go by water. If you go by water from Bruna Baque, I believe it's four days by water to get there. Okay. Um, so the road does make things substantially faster, but it's not much of a road. It's all relative. Yeah. I mean, it's it's paved, I'd say, maybe a quarter of the way. Yeah. And the rest you turn off and you're driving between these like giant anthills, like fields of giant anthills. There are macaws flying overhead I and mean, giant flocks of like bright red and blue and yellow macaws. And there are capybara along the road just hanging out like idiots, <laughs> like waiting to get run over. <laughs> There were so, again I more, so, more name calling. <laughs> they are really stupid. I, like I saw a lot of dead capybaras in the road, and there are not that many cars going on that road, so they must be like aiming for them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are tons of capybaras around, and Las Benitas is an interesting village because it, I think, until like ten years ago, they only had about ten families living there, and then when the baiche turned up, more and more people started to come to fish
1: because
0: Mm -hmm. it was a little bit more lucrative. The logging industry was having issues, which used to employ a lot of people illegal logging. Um, So they started to come to these riverside villages to, to fish. And then in 2014, there was a big flood that wiped out all of the wildlife in the surrounding area and rendered all of their fields infertile. Um, so that wow. what had previously been the primary source of income, which was basically making jerky out of bushmeat to sell to merchants that were going by on the water.
1: So just like shooting idiot capybara. Shooting idiot capybaras
0: making and, making, and making jerky out of, out of them, okay. yeah, essentially. Nice. that And, you know, farming. Those two things were no... They, they only fished for subsistence previously. But because those two industries were destroyed, their only alternative really was to fish. Now you have a village that has, I think, 30 families in it. Or when I went in 2016, almost all of them earned their meager, but earn their livings by fishing. They're trying to fish for paiche, but in the process, they're also fishing for everything else. Right. Um, we were there, and then from there, did another six hours upriver on a canoe um, with a motor to actually go fishing in a spot where they said that they knew there were, there were paiche. So
1: these 30 families have moved to Piñitas to fish, but they still have to jam out six hours to go and find the fish.
0: Yeah. Um, Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Um,
1: I was complaining about my commute on the subway this morning. Right. (laughs) I think I've got, I've got some perspective.
0: It is difficult on one's back and butt, but it's beautiful. I mean, there were butterflies everywhere. I mean, six hours of just being surrounded by clouds of butterflies. I mean, it's, it's really, really spectacular. Then this more recent trip, we did a slightly different thing. Um, we, went, we started in a town called uh, Ribrata, which is the, uh, the largest port in Bolivia, which isn't saying much, given that it's landlocked. But it is the most important city in northern Bolivia, kind of in the Amazon region. So we flew there from La Paz, which actually took ages. And then from there, we went to a couple of different places. We went to a village called uh, Tridazito, which is um, now it's a three-hour drive to get there. It didn't used to be that, it didn't used to be that easy.
1: So tell me about uh, Riberalta. what? Yeah,
0: uh, Riberalta. Okay. Riberalta's primary industry is Brazil nuts. Um, That's what the town lives on.
1: So it's a fucking lie. These are Bolivia nuts.
0: They are Bolivia nuts. Actually, the vast majority of Brazil nuts that you consume are probably from Bolivia. Okay. I mean, to the point where the port itself is actually uh, paved to the extent it's paved or graveled, I guess, with discarded shells from Brazil nuts instead of with gravel. That's when you walk down to the port, it's just paved in the shells of brazil nuts it's like a baseball dugout so that's that's riberalta and it's actually a kind of a nice town it's like a lot of acai it's really close to the border with brazil two hours from there you get to a town called guaira which is on the border on the river that separates the two and yeah these towns are because of airlines they're not as inaccessible as they used to yeah but they do feel really isolated i mean once you're there to go by road from Riberalta to Guaya is only two hours, but to go from Riberalta to La uh, Paz is, like, if you're lucky, 30 hours. To go from Riberalta to Trinidad, which is the capital of the state of Beni, which is the state that that's in.
1: Yeah. And if you're in a border town between Bolivia and Brazil and the Amazon, does everybody speak Portuguese and Spanish, yeah. or do they all just speak their indigenous language?
0: The indigenous communities in that area, unfortunately, don't have as much of a presence as you would think. There are still some, and there are regions that are controlled by uh, essentially indigenous councils that have governing rights in those areas. Uh Uh, But the indigenous languages have mostly been lost. That border is really porous. I mean, you don't even have to show a passport to go across. I mean, they have the... Puerto Clandestino, the like hidden port in on the Bolivian side, is right next to where the customs agents sit. And that's like where all the black market trade happens. And there's tons. There's a lot of oil sold across because Bolivia produces a lot of cheap oil. Um, fish is sold illegally across the border. Actually, one of the funny things with the with the Baiche in that area, stories we were told multiple times in Guaira Gua- Gua- was that uh, when the Brazilian side started to crack down more on illegal fish coming across, people would be going across the Bolivian side and buying the baby fish from Bolivian rivers to put into fish farms on the Brazilian side. Yeah. So they would be coming across the river with buckets full of these baby fish, and when they would see the, <laughs> the border police coming mostly to see if they had this fish illegally crossing, they would just throw them into the river. Sure. And so part of the reason that this fish is spread as well has been sort of like, oh shit, we shouldn't have this. And they just like toss it into the river. So they're like releasing them deliberately because of the border police who are trying to stop the transit of this illegal fish.
1: That's like if like kilos of coke would just like reproduce in the Rio Grande, you know? (laughs) Hey,
0: all these factors, and a lot of them driven by well-meaning laws that just don't really do a great job of regulating the things they're supposed to regulate.
1: Well, one of the things I love about the story... uh, besides the fact that it's an ugly asshole fish that grunts like a pig, is that it's like this very, very touching story of like all of man's worst impulses and like the fish that it's kind of abetting, you know? It's like they're making dams in these like terrible and thoughtless ways. And so mm-hmm. so then it floods and the paiche get everywhere and it's like this series of consequences and it's like the paiche is, is a little bit of the I guess they've been the beneficiary of a lot of shitty human stuff.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you're looking at a species that's been around for 5 million years. So even if they're, like, kind of dumb and surface-to-breed... Now I'm adding dumb to my set of insults (laughs) for the page. You you know, they They surface-to-breed. Part of the reason they were hunted so close to extinction is that they're really not hard to hunt. Like, and people in Bolivia will tell you that they are. But if you talk to people who are from the areas where they're native, they're like, no, you just wait for them to surface and you shoot an arrow at their heads like they're not that hard to kill. Um, That's amazing. I think part of what's disturbing for us with species like these and part of the reason people are so undone by it, other than the fact that it's weird looking, is that it's a reminder of the impermanence of things, right? Like we like to imagine the natural world being stable, you know, this idea mm-hmm. of nature being in balance and that it's our fault that it's out of balance and that it's our job to restore balance. And there's some truth to that, but the idea of this, like, static, natural world that exists in perfect equilibrium, that never existed. That's a human invention. And so invasions are a reminder of the fact that, like, everything's always kind of collapsing around us and always has been. We're part of the thing that collapses. And that the world doesn't exist to sustain us, right? Like, we are going to destroy ourselves eventually. Other species are destroyed all the time. And other species are born all the time. Um flux. And that's a hard thing for humans to wrap our heads around, I think.
1: For you, what was your sense of the Bolivians that you spoke to about, you know, how did they think about the Paiche and
0: what's happening there? Um, We spoke to people in a village outside of Guayarabarine, and they are still... Kind of freaked out by it. I mean, you can see them when they fish a really big one, everyone gathers to look at it as they pull out it out of the water. They like pose for pictures with the thing. Like, it's really still a novelty. How
1: big is really big?
0: I mean, we saw one that they said was pretty normal size. I'm six feet tall and it was longer than I am. And they said that was normal. It was big, it was really scary. And they're like, oh no, this is that's not even that big. They grew up to three, three meters.
1: That's terrifying.
0: Yeah. So the response there was people don't like it. People miss their native species. But, but
1: but just to make it clear, this is not like a you know a movie with the rock or something. They're not like snatching kids off the riverbank.
0: No, no, no. There, there were stories about that too initially. Like oh. in villages that don't have them yet, but who have like neighboring villages that uh-huh. have them, there will be stories of them eating people. Yeah, but so they then,
1: don't. Then it becomes the Chupacabra.
0: Yeah. But no, people's attitude, honestly, for a lot of people... It depends a lot on how long the species has been there. So villages that have had it for a while and have kind of reshaped their economies around it are pretty down with it. I mean, their their vibe on this is like, "Hey, I miss eating tastier fish, but you know, (laughs) I'm earning a lot more money because I have so much meat that I have access to, and like, there is a growing market for it, so it's fine."
1: I assume these guys get to like six feet pretty quickly if you're talking about relatively new, like. Invasions and monster fish already,
0: yeah, they grow pretty fast i mean they've they've been in the Bolivian Amazon now for about forty years, okay, so it's not super recent, yeah but it's just that they're spreading really fast. <laughs>
1: Right. So you're out there, and then what is it? Is it all like hand fishing? Is it li- hand line?
0: Yeah. So it depends a bit on where you are. Uh-huh. Um, they In Las Benitas, they're fishing um, with hand lines for the most part. Um, in Trinidadcito, which is one of the first towns that spotted it back in the early 80s, um, they also are only fishing with hand lines. And their reason for that is that they want to preserve the fish stocks they have so that they can continue fishing this as an economic benefit. In other places, they are using nets. So in this village that we were in uh, north of Guayramarín, where it turned out very recently, they're doing things. They're putting down nets for like two, three hours and coming back with six fish, sometimes 10 fish, sometimes 12 fish.
1: And then Um, a lot of bycatch.
0: Not as much bycatch as you would think. They are getting some, uh-huh. um, but not as much as you would think. They have tried to get their hands on the bigger nets to specialize in bite
1: I imagine if you just have a net that's got a hole that's like a foot in diameter, yeah. you're going to catch a big beast and then... Yeah, and the not- other stuff
0: is mostly going through. Yeah. Um, also, they're saying that part of the reason there's not that much bycatch is there's not that much... Of other fish around at the moment
1: because the paiche are just chomping them all. Yeah, we supposedly. were also
0: there at the end of the rainy season, so it was the river was pretty full. Um, so what happens in the rainy season is that a lot of the other fish tend to swim down the middle, and the paiche tend to swim at the edges. So they set these up kind of along the edges of the river. But no, it's amazing. I mean, they said th- they put these nets down truly for a couple of hours, and we're talking like within fifteen minutes of yeah. the village. Like they go down river a few minutes, they drop the nets, they hang out, they chew a bunch of coca, drink a bunch of beers go back, and then pull, yeah, sometimes a dozen fish out of one net.
1: All of which weigh 40, 50, 100?
0: Yeah. I mean, a small one is 30 kilos. Wow. Um, and they get a bunch of those. You know, pulling out 150 kilo fish doesn't happen every day. It's not that uncommon either. Man, that sounds like the life. Yeah, well, it's kind of a little too easy in some ways. Yeah. Uh, well, it leaves a lot of downtime, which isn't great. So people are just like... Real drunk. Real drugs. Well, there's nothing really to do. Yeah. I mean, this whole region was, the first industry there was rubber. So rubber barons kind of set up shop there. Then as the market for synthetic rubber took over natural rubber and the rubber industry kind of declined um, in the middle of the 20th century, it switches to Brazil nuts, which is still kind of the dominant industry. Um, and then in the 80s, you have a brief gold rush, which didn't last that long, fortunately, because the gold industry and the Amazon is a disaster because of all the mercury they use. But in all those industries, you have whoever was like running anything. You have the rubber barons, the the Brazil nut barons. <laughs> Basically, they would sell intoxicants before it would be tobacco um, and coca. Well, coca is later because this is the little ones. Before it was tobacco and alcohol. Now it's tobacco, alcohol, and coca. Okay. And they sell it on advance on credit to the guys who work for them, who then go out and often they will not make enough to pay back for those intoxicants, hmm. right? So you are generating an addiction that keeps people permanently in debt, so they'll never fish enough to actually be able to buy their own supplies or not work for you.
1: But it'll be fun for the river to watch them try.
0: Sure, but it's, it's a bit of a bummer because you'll see people talk about like, yeah, you know, I wish I could have my own boat. And it's like, you could have your own boat. It's just that there is this kind of way of keeping these systems intact yeah, um, yeah. that can be like super damaging.
1: What's the bait when you're fishing with a hand line?
0: Other fish. Um, they use a lot of piranha, actually. depend. It depends on where you are. People have different ideas of what they actually like to eat. So, you so these motherfuckers catch...
1: will eat piranhas.
0: I mean, piranhas are delicious.
1: Well, but yeah, but you wouldn't go and like snatch one live with your mouth in the nah, river.
0: That I wouldn't do. Probably. So in different places, they told us different things. In some places, they told us they don't really like piranhas. In other places, they told us they do. People are still really learning about this fish, right? Yeah. Because it's all anecdotal. But yeah, I mean, we fished a few with piranhas. Um, you take them out of the river, you cut them in half. Well, the thing is they swallow stuff whole. So like they actually swallow the hook and you kind of pull them out slowly. You can tire them out. They do fight back and they like splash around a bunch, but you can actually kind of let them sit out there for a while if they're really hooked on them. Yeah. Yeah. um, And then you pull it in. But yeah, I saw, I pulled in one, a small one and they, in order to get the hook out, had to like reach their hand down its throat and pull it out of its guts because it was all the way down there.
1: Yeah. I guess that's how you quickly get to six feet. Yeah. Uh, by just swallowing what, everything. Yeah, I mean, they
0: opened some of their stomachs and found, like, rocks and stones and mud. So, I mean, wow. they really are eating whatever goes into their, like, giant hinged mouths. What assholes. Yeah, they're dicks.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I know the first story you ever wrote for Roads and Kingdoms was about the Prawn Wars mm-hmm. in South Asia. Uh, you do seem to do a lot of fishing stories. In fact, you you had done them well enough that, you know, every time we got fishing pitches, we'd just be like, nope, we're good on those. <laughs> like, like, Michael's got us covered. What is it about the water that you want to get back to reporting on?
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's something I've asked myself a lot, actually. I grew up in, in Baltimore, but, like in the suburbs of Baltimore. It's not as though I grew up like going out on boats. I mean, from a food perspective, I do kind of comment a lot of stories as food stories to begin with, and then food leads you in all sorts of different directions. To begin with, I love seafood as a thing to eat. But I think a lot of it has to do with, like, fishing communities are almost always fascinating. They exist in these sort of liminal spaces. They are working in an industry that I think captures a lot of the problems with With borders, with international law, with conservation, with climate in a really immediate, urgent way. So like all these issues that are super important to the larger stories we're trying to tell about the world right now, I think manifest in really exciting ways in places where people are fishing and living off of the water. I mean, there are new technologies for fishing, a lot of them pretty bad, but generally speaking... It's an industry that works in ways that are not that different from how it's always worked.
1: And there's also like, there's, I, I don't know, it's it feels like there's attraction too, which is, I mean, one of the things that, so you, you went down there with Felipe Luna, who's a photographer out of Mexico City, and he did a takeover of our Instagram, and it was like the most goth takeover I think we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. so the pictures are all so dark and there's just like a, a little, you know, off in the shadow, there's like a little glimmer of a, of a you know, a scaly fish or something. Yeah, and
0: people fish at night. It's like, it's kind of tough. Uh,
1: yeah. And it just kind of reminded me that one of the things that's really appealing about the oceans, the rivers, as a, you know, lakes or fishing as a, as a kind of topic is like, there's just so much we don't know. Yeah. Like, you're on the edge of mystery constantly. Yeah. Just very different than if you're doing a piece about, like, Fucking pig farming in mm-hmm. North Carolina is like, yep, they're the pigs.
0: Also, fishermen spend a lot of time like alone, being bored, and like learn ways to have fun, um, which is always kind of interesting.
1: Chatting with like random foreigners who mm-hmm. show up uh, to do stories.
0: Also, being silent, which is something that always impresses me. Like people who actually are able to yeah. like sustain silence for extended periods of time, because that's like a you know, suburban person who works with words, I, like, find it terrifying still.
1: I, I think you and I would really suck at that. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Although next episode of the podcast, just all silence. John Cage style? <laughs> Don't even.
0: Also, being on boats is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, any excuse to be on a boat is pretty great. And fishing boats are fascinating. They're, like, crazy places. I mean, they're they're filthy. And, I mean, not necessarily, but often, like, they're really hard to keep clean, they're really dynamic like there's always stuff moving and like all these objects that I don't understand and I don't know they're they're fascinating places to be there's something about water it's the unknowability of it and the ungovernability of it is really interesting that like I think it really really shines a harsh light on how totally inadequate human institutions and laws are to (laughs) actually confront the world we all really want to believe that we that we figured out a way to like make things make sense and um, you can sort of kind of believe that when you're on the ground. Right. I mean, borders are stupid regardless. But like, you, know, you cross a land border and it's like, oh, we have like a fence right. and a post and you cross it. And, and there's you're, like a person to check a thing.
1: Neither you nor your cow are just going to roll across. Exactly.
0: This. And then you get out on the water and whether it's a river or an ocean or a lake and you just realize like there's no way to have control over this. Yeah. Anything that like, shines a light on human folly is kind of great, <laughs> and water seems to always do that. And fish in particular, because they just are these like, big bug-eyed things that move around at will and have no interest in whatever kinds of laws and rules we try to set down. <laughs>
1: you can't even tempt them with our civilizations. I'm sitting here thinking about Roads and Kingdoms features uh, coming up. What's the next great water story that you want to do?
0: Oh, that's great water story that I want to do? Just um,
1: you and some fishermen.
0: Me and some fishermen. I think I'm going to take a little break from fishermen. Really? Maybe, just for a little while.
1: So are we going to have to accept other people's? I don't want to, I no, don't want to do that. Definitely not. I mean, <laughs> Go on hiatus.
0: I mean, uh, the, an area I'm really, really interested in is the Pacific coast of Mexico. In particular, the Istmo de Tehuantepec. Um, which I've written about for us as well. I wrote a piece on the recovery from the earthquake uh, there last year.
1: I remember this, and I remember your descriptions of the place as uh, a place so in touch with its old ways of eating that in the market that was destroyed in Mm Huchitán, you would see big vats of mole with just like an iguana. With lots of iguanas. Lots of iguanas. iguanas. So not (laughs) not just one for flavor. Which,
0: as it turns out, is delicious. It's kind of like frog legs but with fish skin is sort of what it tastes like. It's really good. Iguanas are super tasty.
1: I'm down. I've tried to kill iguanas uh, in my yard in Key West so many times. They're really fucking hard to kill. Are they hard to kill? They <laughs> are hard to kill. Well, I, I should say, like, I don't have a, a a weapon, so we would just try to like <laughs> brain them and stuff, and they were not you down. You get so much
0: trouble for this from the animal rights people. Like,
1: Washington. no, no, come come down to Key West and have an iguana shit on your porch for six months. So they're nice. invasive, like the Paiche.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're not supposed to be down there. You um, be eating all of them then. You're not actually allowed to kill them. But what uh-huh. we what we do is we just call up uh, people in the community who are from Central America. And they're just like, great. You know, it's like asking a white person if they want to come and collect the potato salad that's in your <laughs> yard. <laughs> they're like, this is perfect. I'm, I, I'll i be right really over. It's really
0: delicious. Yeah. Like, it's a really nice meat. <laughs>
1: I encourage everybody, we'll put it in the show notes. Roads and Kingdoms story about the paiche, and actually, there'll be other stories also. The believer, Felipe's pictures are awesome. And this is an ugly asshole of a fish that you will be fascinated by. Mm-hmm. The trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Josie Holtzman and Danielle Roth of Future Projects. Our editor is Roads and Kingdoms Taffy Mukunyadze. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Thanks to Adele Rodriguez for the art and Dan the Automator for the music. Next week, join me and Chef Matt Orlando as we drink instant coffee in Ireland and talk about how he's taking responsible, sustainable restaurant touring to a whole other planet. We take all the stems of kale, add 2% salt to them, let them sit for four or five days in a warm room, dry them out, grind them to a powder, and it tastes like seaweed you just carry a little baggie of this stuff? I've got a little coke spoon we can use. If, uh... Dude,
0: seaweed bumps? <laughs> Kale stem bumps? Kale stem bumps.
1: <laughs> wow! Uh, we'll meet you there.